Hello to everybody. Now we have a thematic debate and the title of the thematic debate is Should Loris patient with polycythemia vera or myelofibrosis be treated? I am Francesco Passamonti and I serve as a chair of this thematic debate. And together with me, we have two great contenders today. Professor Kristen Andersen, who works as a senior physician and head of the MPN Center at the Riggs Hospitalet in Copenhagen. And Kristen is an MBM expert and in also as the chair of the Nordic MPN study group. And I think that Kristen follows the long Scandinavian tradition for preemptive treatment in patients with myelopolyphal neoplasms. As for this reason, he has been asked to take the yes 10 position for today. And then we have Professor Claire Harrison, who works as a consultant at the Caius St. Thomas Hospital in London. And I have to say that Claire has influenced the major advances in PM field from uh, the discovery of uh, the mutations, so the driver mutation, traditional mutations in NPNs to the design of global clinical trials. And uh, she also creates a patient charity, the MPN Voice, and also participated to the development of other charities, such as the Blood Cancer UK on the MPN Research Foundation. And uh, she has been asked to take the no stand for the today debate. This is just an introduction. So who is uh, at low risk in PV? We have different possibility to stratify this patient, but uh, I think today that we have to consider the conventional risk stratification that include age more than 60 and prior risk of thrombosis as a risk factor for thrombosis. We can use some other mutations such as SRSF2, IDH2 that can predict uh, OS in some study, IDH2 ranks 1 who can predict, predict leukemia free survival and U2AF1 that can predict MF3-survival. And then we have also the recent ELN recommendation that provides some recommendation about the indication for the use of site of reduction, such as poor tolerance to phlebotomy, symptomatic progressive splenomegaly, increased leukocytosis, increased thrombocytosis, a, need, a high need of phlebotomy, and also an excessive symptomatology, and so on. The second point uh, is myelofibrosis, who is at low risk in MF. And for, myelof myelof for primary myelofibrosis, we have to consider the IPSS, the IPSS that used very simple clinical parameters. The mid 70 that added to these parameters also bone myelofibrosis, the presence of uh, driver mutation, and also the presence and number of additional mutations that define the high molecular risk. Uh, for post-PV and post-ET myelofibrosis, we have to consider the MySEC-PM that combine clinical parameters to the driver mutations. So these are, are more or less the reason why we have to discuss about this point. So this point is quite relevant and we have to consider these uh, um, categories. So now it is uh, time for, uh, for Kristen. Can you present the key to <coughs> the discussion? Thank you. I Yes, I certainly can. Thank you, Francisco. And I hope you can all hear me. I've switched to my AirPods, but I, yes, thank you. Okay, so so this is a male patient of mine, a 40-year-old man who was referred to us with a high hemoglobin count of 13.9 microvolts at 22.4 grams per deciliter. He had normal leukocyte and, and platelet counts uh, when we met him. 
and the blood sampling was actually performed as part of a health checkup. GP in an apparently asymptomatic patient, but when we questioned him in the outpatient clinic, uh, he was suffering from oxygenic pruritus in, in a mild to, to moderate degree. But besides that, he was doing just fine. Um, he had no comorbidities, no hypertension, no hypercholesterolemia, which we uh, obviously uh, check uh, at baseline as well. Was a non-smoker. He didn't really drink. He was very physically active. And by the way, he was a physician, so he was a colleague as well. Um, EPO levels were low, no splenomegaly and ultrasound. And we always perform abdominal examinations up front, typical for PV, no iron stores as expected, and importantly, no fibrosis. Um, we performed a, a jet tube mutational testing with a very low frequency of 58%, and he wasn't assessed for any other uh, non-driver mutations at that time. Karyotypically Carot normal, and we concluded this is indeed, as you just uh, beautifully showed, Francisco, a true low-risk PV patient. Started aspirin, phlebotomies, and then what about side reduction? Please, Christian, you have now to convince us uh, to start a treatment for these patients. Okay, so so let's see. So what our so what obviously this patient then starts um, phlebotomies and aspirin. We have some days about that, but the, the real interesting question here is: Should we try to uh, in, in implement some kind of side reduction on this patient then? should be considered, as we say, as nationally and in the Nordic European setting. Yes, it could be with a poor tolerance, high frequency of phlebotomies. Well, we did not know at the time, we just met him with a symptomatic progressive splenomegaly. He had none. Other evidence of disease progression, progressive leukocytosis, as you all know, and several risk factors, but he didn't really have any of those. Um, but also, if there is a personal motivation for treatment of PV, and we do have a certain drug that could potentially influence both his long-term and short-term risks, maybe that was worth trying, even though he did not possess any of these major risk factors. So actually, he did start cytoreductive treatment and started in 2014 with Introna, the unpetulated form of interferon, because we know that in some patients we have long-standing molecular remissions. We have pretty sound data of that accumulating nowadays. And we even have evidence of histological remissions as well. And when he started, he uh, responded uh, well. And by 2015, 1.5 years after he started, his uh, burial allele frequency was below 10%. And actually in 2017, he stopped interferon again because he had a ejectual burden below 1%. Today, 2022, I speak with him every six months. He has normal peripheral blood counts. He's asymptomatic. He's still taking aspirin. I performed an NGS um, uh, during his course just to make sure that his uh, allele frequencies weren't falling due to competing clones, but he was really doing well. And this is a nice example, I think, where we, 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 we show that we have evidence that we can avoid the first occurrence or recurrence of thrombotic uh, complications in such a patient. He remains a very good quality of life. He's asymptomatic. He has no constitutional symptoms. And I think we've minimized his risk of secondary acute leukemia and post-PV myelofibrosis with the data we have today. So I would definitely argue that such a patient as him, when he has been thoroughly um, 
briefed and we've discussed the pros and cons of preemptive treatment with interferon in this case is definitely the way to go. So I would argue that and I'm I'm pretty sure that if the aftercare has has tackled me, that we could discuss that maybe some of the sound data that you do have to support this notion. Please, Claire. Thank the you. The of Gail is, is no. We can wait. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, of course, the option is, is we're really discussing whether this patient should have an additional drug to control blood counts. Of course, the patient should have venesection and aspirin. So I just want to make sure that nobody voted yes, thinking that this was just a vote about aspirin and venesection. Um, the problem we have is that we're still lacking prospective data. And I would agree that um, on an individual patient basis, of course, Kristen's patient is a physician and you can discuss the pros and cons of therapy with a physician. But um, at the present time, we're not clear that um, preemptive treatment with interferon in a patient such as this whose parameters I plugged into the personalized prognostic score, one that you mentioned, Francesco, earlier, his median event-free survival would be 25 years. So I think this patient does need, need active management, but my preference would be to offer the option of interferon, but to gently discourage until such time as he develops features of higher risk disease. And, um, Mainly that argument is on the basis of the lack of clear evidence at the present time for reduction of the allele burden. And although this patient did very well, that only occurs in 20 to 30% of patients. We're not talking about a drug which is, we're not arguing not to treat CML with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor here. We're discussing a drug which is much less potently active. Um, and there are subtle side effects of interferon. So, I think it's really important to um, take a careful approach with the patient, to be very clear and to consider treating not just a patient who is low risk, but a patient when the emergence of other factors occur. And that's why the ELN guidelines and other guidelines, including the British guidelines, reflect that we should just be treating patients who have a high burden of venesection, a high symptom burden, or a progressive leukocytosis. So my position for this patient would be not to implement treatment as yet, um, but that we in the field should continue to gather information and uh, evidence before we subject a patient to treatment. Okay, may, may I comment, Francesco? No, no you have to, we have to comment after, so we have to proceed with the okay. number two. So. But I think it's quite important that we have uh, collected the, your opinion and so we can uh, proceed with the case on uh, the patient with valor fibrosis. Please, Claire, can you comment? Okay. So for this case, I've chosen a patient that's slightly different. So this is a much younger patient. The patient is 24, found to have thrombocytosis on a routine blood test. The patient is asymptomatic. And uh, to first glance, this patient might seem to be a patient with ET. The white blood cell count is at the upper end of normal, the haemoglobin is normal, and the platelet count is clearly elevated. However, the blood film shows some teardrop poikilocytes, no blasts, 
and the LDH is um, double the upper limit of normal. So this case illustrates the importance of, re importance of really carefully evaluating patients with this clinical picture. There was splenomegaly 14 centimeters on an ultrasound scan and a calreticulin mutation type 1 was detected with a VAF of 23%. A bone marrow biopsy, which I would always perform in a patient with a thrombocytosis and a positive CalR mutation, um, was consistent with primary myelofibrosis, but we already had a hint of that from the perspective of the LDH and the blood film. We went ahead and did an extended myeloid gene panel in view of the bone marrow findings, and this, alongside of a SNP array panel, was normal. So the conclusion um, for this patient is that she has primary myelofibrosis, which is low risk, according to the appropriate scores, IPS, GIPS, DIPS, and indeed the MIPS 70 version 2, and also according to the Grinfield personal predictor. So for many of these scores, this patient would have um, a median survival not reached. Thank you, Claire. How many scores have we did on myelofibrosian? <laughs> sure. So just to um, talk about this patient, then she had support from a young person's team. And for sure, of a patient at this age, we had a discussion that at some point she will need a treatment. In particular, we would talk about transplantation and testing siblings. This patient would be reviewed every four to six months with a blood count, a film, LDH, check of symptoms, and an annual ultrasound scan. I'm not clear about the value of repeating the NGS panel. She's currently five years from diagnosis, well, not different from first presentation. The VAF of the Kellar is unchanged, there's no new mutations, white count is stable, hemoglobin is static, platelet count is around 550. So we haven't treated this patient and um, if I was to consider treatment options for her, there would really only be two at this stage. I mentioned transplant just from the perspective of talking to the patient about it, but of course we would not consider that for this patient. So I think there are two options for treatment here. One is interferon, which we already had some discussion about for PV. The data for this agent with a patient who has a calreticulin mutation is less strong. Um, recent data in patients with ET presented by uh, Dr. Mullally suggests that uh, there's no appreciable change in the CalR mutation burden. There's a 20 to 30% risk of side effects. And the benefits for patients with primary myelofibrosis, for which we mainly have data from um, colleagues in France, is at best modest. For JAK inhibitors, I think this patient has no splenomegaly and no symptoms, and there's no current data for intervening early with JAK inhibitors. We tried to do a study with patients with high-risk uh, mutations, and unfortunately, uh, we were unable to accrue sufficient um, patients. So the main argument against treating now is what is the target and a lack of an effective agent and I would say for a disease like myelofibrosis, this is an unsatisfactory position, but it is the position we find ourselves in. Thank you, Claire. Kristen, can you explain your position? Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Claire. Well, um, while I agree that the data make me uh, less strong, I think that um, 
when we look at the prognosis for this patient um, in, in 20 years, uh, according to the Greenfield calculator, she has a, a, a 70 um, percent chance of being alive. So this is a this is a dire diagnosis, and and uh, this young woman could be in trouble. I think that um, you should start preemptive treatment. I think you have uh, a, a pretty good data to pause after a proper information to also start interfering on this patient. We know from calamutated ET patients that it decreased cell yield burden in a, in a, in a, a proper proportion of patients with actually a very low discontinuation rate. And uh, one thing we also know is that if we wait until a uh, second mutation occurs, for instance, then the efficacy will be uh, worse. So by waiting until her splenomegaly progresses, until this young woman becomes anemic, we uh, immediately limit the additional therapeutic uh, regimens we have. Once she's anemic, it's not very, it's not a, a, a pleasant position to be in because our, our um, agents uh, for, for in, uh, improving anemia in patients are, are not very good. So we, we can't wait until the splenomegaly becomes big. We can't wait until the second or third mutation occurs because we hinder ourselves and, and we put this patient in a in a worse position. So I think with the with the the silver data, the virgin data, the collagen data, all the data we have are interferon in Calab mutated ET and also in PMF patients, actually low risk patients, we know that treatment in a low risk PMF patient just fares better with interferon if we wait until the intermediate risk or high risk. So this this old young woman only has things to lose. She you know she can only win by starting interferon if we have informed her properly. So I would uh, definitely, with such a young patient, argue to start preemptive treatment. That's really well the, your position, and uh, I think that uh, now we have time for a sort of debate among us. Uh, also receiving some Q, uh, Q question from the audience. So, uh, just uh, one, one question for you. So, we have a patient with PV. Yeah. Leukocytosis or the VAF of JEC2 is relevant in your decision or not? Uh, if you're asking me for Francesco, sorry. So, no. uh, <laughs> let's hear your opinion first, Kristen. <laughs> no, I don't want to. No. Yeah, it, it, of course, it's interesting, but you know, it's only a, a part of it. Uh, so, hijacked mutant mutant allele burdens are, are, are worrisome, you know, because we know from the ET population that their allele burdens are lower. Once you have about 50% yeah, two mutant allele burden, that most often homozygous and that tend to be PV patients, and you know, things are spinning out of control. So, the JAK2 allele burden, the leukocyte, the leukocytosis, all of those um, aspects I see as indications for treatment with interferon because we have more and more data supporting the uh, incredible value of this drug in the long term. And I'm obviously referring to the low PV study, but especially also what we've just seen for the from PV and the CON study with a six-year follow-up. So hematological remissions are good. Shabbatium control is good. Allelic burdens um, um, are very good, and event-free survival is superior. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't just take one um, part of the equation out and say 
the bath is important or the leukocytosis is important. I think in total, these patients should, if there are no contraindications, um, be treated. And so all the different trials we have, the PROPV and the PDRC and LOPV, a super interesting in, in the short-term run, but what we just saw um, from Abu Silna, uh, which really gives a story about what happens to these patients in the in the long term, and that's really the data we've been missing. You know, the mild fibrosis-free survival, the overall survival. Well, I think it, it, it just goes to show that patients fare very good in the long term if they are on interferon. You know both due to the myelofibrosis degree, much better, and actually with a very nice um, profile of side effects. Only 13%, max 20% is discontinue the drug. So I think in regards to PD, we have pretty sound data. Yes, then, sorry. If, if, if you are discussing about quality of life and side effect, the decision of a preemptive treatment is uh, a drug such as interfere with a 20% of discontinuation due to side effect versus nothing. Mm. It is, of course, very well tolerated. So the decision to do just the particular aspect, Claire, which is your position about the leukocyte and VAF? Well, I think the two are probably linked biologically, aren't they? Let's be honest. I think that leukocytosis, um, as that's going up, I suspect that my patient's VAF is going up. Um, I think we don't really have a very clear threshold, so we don't help the community very much. And just thinking back to the patient that uh, Kristen presented, for sure I would um, have discussed a treatment with that patient, and as I mentioned, I would probably have discouraged. But I would have said to him, if your white cell count leukocytes are climbing, if they climb beyond I mean, I think Professor Barbui's data suggests 11, but for myself, it would be more towards 15 or so, or if the patient acquired a cardiovascular risk factor, then I would initiate treatment. I think we have to think about the natural history of these disorders and understand, you know, the lovely data from Jyoti Nangalia and Anne Malali, suggesting that patients may actually have these mutations at a low level for many years many many years sometimes developing in utero and we you know what i think we couldn't possibly be sitting here debating treating those patients with with interferon but you know if we had a better drug that was better tolerated because there are many other issues around interferon i know you're not talking about that now that could be an issue and i think if we had something we knew would change the scenario then we wouldn't be looking and expert recommendations wouldn't be around softer issues. I'm curious though, um, whether we think we should actually switch our our thresholds for treating to a certain variant allele frequency rather than a white cell count, because we know that's, that's affected by many things. For example, other drugs, ethnicity can affect the leukocyte count. I think that the, when we have to decide the preemptive treatment, we, we need to be very sure that in a patient with low risk, we are modifying the natural risk of the disease or we have a drug that is able to, to be really disease modifying. So the point is today, have we enough evidence for the literature to, to say that in general interference 
can reduce the issues of epithelial such as thrombosis, because thrombosis is the most important one. Then for testing myelofibrosis or AML, even free survival, we need the long, long, long follow-up that at the mm. time we have not yet. But, but we still should generate that data. I'm pleased to hear that you're, you're saying, Francesco, that we have not yet got that data. We still need it. And yeah. I think the other thing to mention, what we know from the very nice Swedish cancer registry, and it's quite intriguing, is that... Um, uh, that many patients who develop AML, for example, which is the, the most devastating complication of these diseases, are often JAK negative. So we don't know the data about AML that occurs after interferon. Maybe it's less, but maybe we also have some biased data because we generally treat younger patients with interferon. So their risk is a bit lower. So our, our statement must be around the ROPEG interferon trial that compare ROPEG mm -hmm. and the, the, the follow-up is five year, five year published and the six year presented at EHH just days ago. So that's, that's the number we have to, we have to consider. Kristen. Yes. So, um, you know, I just wanted concerning the side effects and um, also just bear in mind that a substantial amount of the patients that we flopotomize actually endure with a lot of side effects due to iron deficiency. And some of them are actually very, not very good. I, I completely agree with some of the side effects uh, that, that may limit the use of interferon, especially fatigue, which is very a common one. But just also remember what we had come to learn with the new formulations of interferon. You remember the old unpeculated form, so many side effects. And then we had pick intron and Pegasus improved. And, and what we know now from Ropic interferon, it's a, it's a very well-tolerated drug. It's every second week for, for these patients. So I don't just want to mention the, the side effect aspect of things, especially in comparison with being untreated doesn't actually mean that you're asymptomatic. <laughs> you could have quite severe side effects to your iron deficiency. And I think from the low PV study, those, you know, we'll, we can see that the ferritin levels increase. We can see that the symptom burden decreases for these patients. That's interesting. And again, I just also want to emphasize, and I agree with both of you, obviously, that it's the long-term data that we need and that we are collecting right now. But for the, the six-year follow-up in the in the CARP-PV study, n survival was, was much better. And that's after six years. And, and, and this, 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 the, the, the American Silver paper well, we, we can see that it, it's much better in regards to myofibrosis-free survival and overall survival. So, so I really think that if, if, I'm pretty sure that we have, if we have this debate in a couple of years, then things will be different. We are getting the data that we have been in dire need of for the last uh, decade, right? We are getting the data and it supports the preemptive treatment. So we have now to move to the to the second disease uh, because you have to discuss about the second disease and now we have just uh, 15 minutes left. So the second disease is malofibrosis that of course is a completely different disease with the worsened survival at each um, at each risk category. So my first question for you is uh, NGS to all low risk patients and we have also a question from the audience about Sniparay, so NGS, Sniparay, which is your position? Well, uh, maybe I'll start and then, and then Kristen, you follow, because, I mean, these tools are more widely available uh, now 
and um, we can have a turnaround time of, of two weeks. So I could see maybe in one or two years, we, we might just be going straight to an NGS panel. In fact, we use a small panel for MPN diagnostics anyway. Um, I think in a young patient, it's useful to know the mutational profile of the patient and um, that an NGS panel is, is very helpful from that perspective. Uh, just imagining if we found that this patient, for example, had an ASXL1 mutation or an EZH2 mutation, um, it would increase her risk uh, parameter in some of those models, but it probably would not encourage me to use a treatment. I might monitor her more closely. And we just uh, generally choose to do a SNP array because it's a little bit more sensitive and um, you don't need to have mitoses to do that. So that that's just local practice, actually. But I would do that, yes, in all my young patients. But of course, I was using it in this case to make the argument this, that this was a, a very low-risk patient. Kristen, what do you do? Yes, yes, we've had that talk uh, for many years internally, and, and and we do it up front, and we do it uh, for everybody. Um, and and uh, for the younger uh, patients, obviously, because we we need really to know what is what is going on, and we need to know if there are competing clones, and we need to know if certain uh, variant little frequency fall or a decline is that due to some kind of you know battle going on the battlefield. So we do it up front. And I think it's it's also very important to gather that data because the more data that we do gather this way, the better we will be predicting uh, down the line. So, um, and yes, in all uh, low-risk MF patients, yes. Okay, thank you for your comments. So I think that the, as we did in PV, both in MF, the big question is uh, we have now uh, two uh, categories of drug. One is the JEC, SFJEC 120 inhibition that is represented by Ruxolite and, and Febdratinib, and the second are interference. So, can we modify the natural history of the disease, malofibrosis, starting JEC inhibition or interference earlier? That's a question. I think that this is the most important point to decide about amplification because of course myelofibrosis is not PV, so it's much much hard disease much complicated claire so i mean I, I yeah i deliberately chose a patient with a calar mutation because i think really jack 2 positive um diseases on the spectrum i would still argue though even with a jack 2 positive patient that the proud pv data and that patient population is a bit skewed. It's not correct to say this is a well-tolerated treatment completely. Patients are highly selected and Dick Silver's data showing perhaps less MF transformation. You know, those MF patients, uh, that those patients that receive interferon are younger and their risks are less. So I think there is not sufficient um, data for disease modification with um, in low-risk patients uh, or even high-risk patients with interferon. I think there may be some data with um, ruxolitinib, but uh, only as applied to patients who've got a much more, a much bigger burden of disease and the disease modification that we might see and improvement in survival there may really be because we're turning off or dialing down at least a high degree of inflammation, etc. 
So I'm not sure that those same benefits would be seen in a younger, low-risk patient. I think we're really in a very unsatisfactory position as a field and we need to take steps to drive this forward and to understand better how we can influence outcomes for our low-risk patients with um, MF. Maybe that the answer will come from allele burden reduction. It's interesting that, I mean, you presented some very nice data with Navitaclax in combination with roxolitinib and uh, for Navitaclax plaques with roxolitinib in the second line setting, if we see allele burden reduction or fibrosis grade reduction, we see improvement in survival. So if we could take a drug and show that in a robust way, then we could perhaps use that drug or those drugs earlier in the course of disease, but we're not in that position in, from my perspective. And it's a shame. I think that uh, this is a quite important point and thank you for comment. The, the result presented at EHA, and you present a result on uh, uh, on uh, very nice result on the use of pelabrazib uh, plus oxaliti with alteration of megakaryocyte. And uh, this is in the morphology, so the, the clustering. I think that uh, these are biological aspects that are quite important, but uh, of course, you use this new combo in patients with intermediate 1, intermediate 2, and high risk, mainly intermediate 2 and high. So, uh, do you want to comment, the Christian? Yeah, yes, thank you. So, I, I agree. It's very positive that we, for these um, higher risk patients, seem to to obtain more and more um, therapeutic uh, regimens uh, now nowadays. But, but again, it's it's unsatisfactory. And the thing is that that the the patient we discussed uh, before and the patient group that we're discussing today, the low risk PMS patients are not obviously the target of combinational therapies. And, and as I also agree with you, roxolitinib doesn't really have, have its place here. But we do know that younger patients, the lower grade of myeloid fibrosis, and especially the lower risk, the low risk PMF patients, they respond better to interferon as well. So having a, letting your patient, quotation mark, uh, uh, deteriorate to the a higher risk setting, it eliminates your possibility of disease modifying with interferon and it really limits your possible therapeutic regimens for this patient. So waiting uh, for a low risk PMF patient, waiting for the additional mutation as I mentioned, or waiting for the spleen to enlarge, waiting for the, the, the patient to become anemic, it really only limits your choices and it puts the patient in a, in a worse situation. I agree, we really need some, it could be nice with some prospective randomized studies here and Ropey would be very interested in the low-risk PMF setting. But I, again, I think that the, the silver data, which is pretty interesting data, it showed that the low-risk PMF patients, uh, they responded, the intermediate-risk patients, they did worse. And the non-responses, they had additional high-risk mutations. and. Why wait for that? Why wait for that to happen and then limit yourself um, in, in, in treating that patient? And I'm, I'm getting I'm discussing the low risk, not the high risks. Christian, I, I have a, a, a question from the audience just from you. So your treatment, your decision to treat a patient with seropic interference is regardless of the presence of JEC2, Calar, and PN mutation, correct? 
Correct. So I, 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 no, I can't no, read no, it. No comment. Is it just yes or no? Because we have no time to discuss it. No, yes. We, I can't trade with Ropeg. We don't have access to Ropeg and Zafiro. Okay. The second point is aspirin in low-risk MF to prevent thrombosis. Yes or no? Claire. Uh, I would use aspirin, um, but I think the evidence for it in a CALR positive low-risk MF is slim. I'm more keen for JAT2 positive patients to have it, but I would give it to all of them. Kristen? Aspirin in low-risk MF, yes or no? <laughs> if the patient had a CALR... Uh, I would look at the other risk factors. It's so difficult to say because we don't have the data. Do we have additional cardiovascular risk factors, lifestyle factors, things like that, that, that will probably tip me uh, to the choice. But Kristen, sorry. You're, you're, so, you're not sure about aspirin, but you're so sure about interferon. <laughs> I am, and I think the data I have to support that is very good. Just look at what we have seen in the last years. But if I could just and if I could just elaborate a little bit on that, it's because we know that from the low-risk ET patients with calar mutations, we're probably not doing much good with aspartate. And the thing is, we don't have that data on the PMF. So if if we had a patient who I've known for years uh, and he or she it had progressed from ET and was an aspirin, I would probably keep that patient on aspirin. And if the patient had additional risk factors, I would definitely do it. The thing is, we don't really know for de novo PMS patients. And what about when their platelet levels deteriorate? When do we stop clear? That's another thing. So when when they have 75, yeah. it's, it's super yes. difficult. That's just what I'm I agree. And I was only having some fun and scoring a cheat point from you, but... I mean, actually, the data suggests that myelofibrosis patients do have quite high risk of thrombosis, and that, especially the ones that look a bit like ET. Yes, I, I, I agree, but we, we have to move. Sorry, this is a very nice discussion. Aspirin is, is quite important point because, as Claire said, the risk of uh, thrombosis in primary myelofibrosis sector is 4 per 100 patient year, so it's quite high. But we have the problem, of course, of bleeding, thrombocytopenia, and so on. That is... We don't really see that data split by mutation, do we, though? Because I sense that's probably driven by JAT2 positive patients. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. That is interesting. Yeah. 